Hi, and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real-life stories Beyond the Green Line we balance along. Hello and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel Gleason-Willie. Our guest today is Dr. Charles Massey, farmer, Order of Australia Medal recipient, ANU Honorary Senior Lecturer, author of the books Breaking the Sheep's Back, Call of the Reed Warbler, which won Scholarly Nonfiction Book of the Year in the Educational Publishing Awards in 2017 and was shortlisted for various other prestigious awards and the book, The Last Dragon. Hi, Charlie. It's really exciting to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, vice versa. Uh, You guys do a good job and pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start, I guess, way back at the beginning of our conversation today um, and just ask you a bit about yourself. So I know that you grew up on a farm and that you are a farmer yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about life growing up on the land and what it was like for you? Sure. When you say starting back, that's sort of prehistoric <laughs> almost. <laughs> yeah, look, I was privileged to grow up on a sheep farm down here on the Monero. Only child. My, my mother died when I was about four and a half. So in a way, that what that led to was me uh, roaming the property, getting really imbibed in nature and you know running around with potty lambs and getting to know the bush. So that was really what got me interested in the environment uh, and bird watching, et cetera, from a young age. And the Monaro is, from my recollection, it's quite a harsh environment, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. Uh, we can get down to minus 14s and, uh, and it, it's, but it's like a lot of those hard environments I've seen in mountains, et cetera, around the world. They're, they're, they're healthy and uh, somehow they're not soft and, and it's sort of, they're more edgy and, and more stark and more beautiful. And uh, we're lucky we've got about a third of the property with a lot of native bush and tree breaks and stuff we've replanted. So the biodiversity here is constantly improving, which is good. Mm, It sounds beautiful from your descriptions that I've read of it. So you are somewhat of a celebrity in the ecological and agricultural worlds for your revolutionary agricultural practice known as regenerative agriculture that you talk about in your book, Call of the Reed Warbler. What was the catalyst for starting you on this journey? Yeah, I'm not so sure about the word celebrity. I've certainly... um, been dragged into talking <laughs> about things. And really, I'm only the storyteller. It's, it's the, the, the movement of Regen Ag is bottom up. It's widely spread. It's been around for hundreds of years, which is really working with biology rather than against it. What got me going was I had to take over our farm when I was about 22. I had to leave uni, finish part-time when my father had a serious heart attack. So I didn't even though I was doing zoology and, and, and human ecology at uni, it didn't translate to farming so much. So I sought the best advice of, of local farmers I knew on how to farm and, and there's no such thing as Regen Ag then. So I became what I thought was a good industrial farmer, which meant putting on fertiliser and, and in time for a year or so chemical, leaving animals in paddocks for six months or more, which is called set stocking. And, and I thought I was measuring up to the description good farmer uh, until we walked into the uh, 
a four-year drought in the late 70s, early 80s. And at the end of that, my industrial mindset said that um, my most important asset were our animals, our sheep. We were breeding a good line of sheep with some scientists, merino sheep for beautiful wool for Italy, etc. And the landscape was suffered, whereas now I realise our most valuable asset is actually the landscape, the soils and, and the biodiversity. So at the end of that big drought, we, we ended up with a quite a big debt because we decided to keep the animals and, and the semi-trailer loads of grain coming in at big cost. That was the head cracker uh, for me that uh, there had to be a better way of destroying land, especially someone who was meant to be biophilic, a lover of nature. So really by the early uh, 90s when regenerative agriculture, particularly the grazing operations, were just starting, within a year or so of that, I, I became involved in a totally different approach to how we grazed our animals on this landscape. So it was, as is, is often the case in change, it was that head-cracking event that broke open in my mind. Yeah, going through the hardship to make you look wider, more broadly, I guess. So in a nutshell, what is regenerative agriculture? I guess I've lectured at uni and, and done talks, but it's simplifying it, it's actually working with nature, allowing her self-organising processes to emerge and perform as they want to. And that's due to millions of years of, well, hundreds of millions of years of co-evolution. Rather than trying to simplify them to control what chemicals you put on and, and, and have monocultures and all that sort of thing. So in my lectures, uh, I, I really have a simple model, which I've adapted from others, of the five landscape functions, which is maximising the solar energy, the soil health, the water cycle and, and biodiversity. And, and in that model, I've added the fifth element, which is we're creatures, we're humans that interfere with those processes. So Really, Regen Ag is, is getting all those key functions in a landscape working together rather than destroying, simplifying, dominating. Mm. And we'll go into that definitely in much more detail later on in this conversation because I'm really interested in, in that aspect. But we'll, we'll just go and have a, a chat about your PhD firstly because this was actually the reason why you ended up writing Call of the Reed Warbler, wasn't it? So what was the question that you were answering for your PhD? I suspect I answered it. I certainly, the, the question was because I was looking at my own journey and seeing some of the innovators really doing great things was what made them change? So it was really the, uh, a psychological question. And, and so a PhD involved interviewing 80 of the leading regen farmers across Australia and in the different bioregions and just finding out why they did change. And it was essentially then about 60% of the cases they'd experienced what I had, a head-cracking event that just shocked them, you know, a chemical accident, burnt in a bushfire, big droughts, marriage breakup, animal disease, something that forced them to think, as one of the key innovators I spoke to, forced them to think around corners or laterally or, or differently outside the old paradigms. Mm. It does seem like a massive shift in thinking, especially when your, you know, your parents probably thought the same way and your grandparents probably thought the same way if you're on a multi-generational farm. So it's amazing that um, these farmers, these particular people actually were able to make that, that, I guess, break from the tradition and see the difference that could be made. You're absolutely right. I'm, out of those 80 farmers, 60% 
had that major head cracking event, but the other 40, many of them were probably already what you'd say biophilic. They, they were already keen on nature, et cetera. And it was probably a series of little destabilizing events that eventually pushed them across as well. So it's a really interesting psychological field, this whole thing. Yeah. Mm, definitely is. There's a lot of talk in the science community at the moment about our move into the Anthropocene epic, so the age of human-induced change to the Earth's systems. In terms of agriculture, this is tied strongly to the mechanisation of farming, as you talk about in your book, which has produced humankind's largest engineered ecosystem. And I believe that is approximately 38% of the terrestrial landmass. So how was this shift associated with a change to a mechanical mind in farming? Yeah, well, I sort of go go into it in uh, in the book briefly. Uh, did it more in the PhD. That if you look back at human history, there's a major shift that occurred from about the 18th century on when modern science evolved. And if, if you look back at Indigenous peoples and, and even medieval people, they were still very much in sync with nature. They saw themselves as a small part of a big natural cycle. And then the scientific revolution occurred, and, and thinkers like Descartes and and others, and including in that was modern economic thinking from Smith and Locke and people like that. And so we shifted to what I wasn't the first to describe this, what's called the mechanical mind, where the world is seen as, uh, and this, this came with the rise of modern science, that it's something you can understand in mechanistic terms. And once you start thinking like that, rather than having a empathy and a bit of awe about being a small part of nature. Once you start thinking in that mechanical process, the next step is starting to dominate, control nature, simplify it. And then then in the late 1800s, we started to get the modern fertilizers and increasing monocultures. And 20th century, we get all the power of big machinery, big chemical, big fertilizer, especially post-Second World War. And, And so the upshot of all that, which is behind your question, is that process of humanity driven initially by an increasing industrialization of agriculture and then the raping of the earth for, for the resources to feed people and, and then, uh, you know, the profit-making at all costs syndrome of, of big business post-Second World War especially. We've now absolutely without doubt started to destabilize the nine systems that sustain our earth. But then as far as we know, the earth is the only body in the universe with life on it, hence it's blue-green. It's got this mm. very thin protection around it that sustains us in a extraordinarily hostile environment. And those nine systems, uh, five or six of them, are, are in a really dangerous state. And, and those key ones, like climate, loss of biodiversity, etc., industrial agriculture has played a major part in destabilising. And I guess that's why I, I, I'm spending time talking to good programs like yours and, and traveling widely and talking is that without doubt, if we could swing the world back to a regenerative agriculture, we can have a huge impact on pulling us back from the abyss, if you like, of, of ecosystem collapse at a planetary scale. And the big consequence of doing that is the impact on human health, because the, in parallel with the destruction of the planet system is, is the uh, similar exponential rise of destruction in human health. You've only got to look at all the modern diseases. And they're all following about 15, 20 years after industrial ag got going and we denatured food and put poisons into it. 
they follow the same exponential path of, of rising destruction that we're seeing in the planet. So it's a huge story, this Regen Ag. We could both heal the planet's systems and a lot of the human health issues. And that's, to me, that's pretty exciting and, and why a lot of us are in this space talking, et cetera. Yeah, and we are getting very, very close to, I guess, that point of no return. One of the recent IPCC reports actually said that we have to start reducing drastically the amount of carbon that we are putting into the atmosphere within the next two years. Otherwise, basically, that is the point of no return, which is really quite shocking for us. I guess we've spent a long time as a society, as a population, thinking that we're doing a lot, but in reality, are we actually you know, having the the desired effect that we want with reducing carbon. And I would argue, no, that we haven't done enough. But agriculture does have the potential to store huge amounts of carbon in our soils through the principles of Regen Ag, you know, one way to do that. But how is this carbon stored deeply and not released through later farming practices? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the people in this journey I've been privileged to talk to and work with is um, Paul Hawken, who's written some wonderful stuff in the States just lives outside San Francisco on the edge of the Mule, wonderful Mule Forest. And he's published a couple of seminal books. His first book was called Drawdown, where he got about 100 scientists, uh, 70 or 80 scientists, to look at the 100 best methods of pulling carbon down out of the atmosphere, which, as you rightly point out, is, is probably one of the first big systems that could collapse. And in getting to know him and reading the book, out of the 100 best methods, it turns out that the 24 best out of the 24 best methods, half of them were variants of regenerative ag. And in discussions with him, we, we sort of agreed, well, if you call all those 12 out of the 24 best ones regen ag, it's number one by a country mile at pulling down carbon dioxide and putting it in the earth. And when you do that with a regenerative process, which means that you, you, you're getting your biology to really work, all that complex biology that's co-evolved for millions of years in these systems, which we've tried to simplify. But when it's put down by regenerative methods, you're ending up with much longer-lived carbon. This is an answer to your question, uh, you know, can it stay there, etc. Mm. You know, it's natural for carbon to be released when plants breathe and all that sort of stuff, but a, a high percentage of that, uh, because of the the wonderful capacity of having green on our planet to photosynthesize and make put, put down the carbon. A high percentage of that could be in long-lived forms of carbon and quite deep, whether it's forest or deep-rooted perennial plants, etc. But our modern cropping systems, instead of the basic rule in farming and grazing is keep the ground covered so you're not letting the atmosphere and, and hot sun and everything allow the release of carbon dioxide. So when you see green fully covering the earth, you can bet that there's more carbon going in that, than is being breathed out, et cetera. And that's really the secret is, is why with, with an industrial agricultural approach, you know, they'll plant the crop, but then when it's harvested and, and re-ploughed or re-sown or, or sprayed out, you've got all that bare ground and that bare ground means carbon going back out. So it's pretty simple 101 agronomy, but what's behind it is, is really that the, uh, the big end of town, the world's greatest multinationals, whether they're chemical or pharmaceutical companies or the big traders, uh, it's in their interest to keep driving destruction by fostering industrial agriculture. And, and so those of us in the regen space are in a way sticking our necks out by taking on the big powers. But if we don't, if we don't turn this around, well, then uh, the big powers won't have much of a profit line in a few decades. Yeah. So I guess from a practical point of view, for somebody wanting to implement this on their property or their farm, 
would they would it one of the first steps that they might look at doing be things like moving livestock frequently, over sowing with you know native perennials and having a you know lots of different species in there, whilst and then I guess as they're moving their animals around, making sure that they're not having them in any particular paddock for more than a couple of days. I don't know what what sort of um, thing would somebody you know introduce first into their farm. Absolutely, uh, you've, you've covered it pretty well. I mean the. The whole movement of regenerative grazing, uh, holistic grazing, whatever you want to call it, evolved in what was then Kenya, now Zimbabwe, with uh, a, a wildlife biologist called Alan Savory, who, who asked the question, how come these giant, as they were in the 60s when he was working, how come these giant migratory birds are responsible for the healthiest grasslands on earth? And, and he worked out a simple principle behind it, which was, you know, millions of animals with dung and urine to refertilize the earth and a bit of trampling to break open the ground. But they were never there for more than a few days because you had the big cat predators always driving. And so off they would go. So the plants were eaten pretty quickly and not necessarily into the ground. And they may not come back for six months on the return trip. And so that basic principle of approach of what's a healthy grassland we now do on farms. We don't have a million animals, but by dividing your paddocks with fencing or electric, cheap electric fencing or whatever, you can get to the same animal density. You only leave them in the paddock for a few days and they may not come back for three or four months. And so when you adopt that approach, what you're really doing is enabling nature, whether it's Africa or Australia or North America or anywhere around the world, this has been shown to work. You're enabling her to act like she wants to, to self-organize and, and the soil biology to work with the plants, et cetera, et cetera. And the same principles apply in cropping. A lot of the modern regenerative cropping have animals grazing through a system because things like our cereal plants co-evolve with ruminant animals to be grazed anyway. That they'll respond to saliva and things like that. And so the, the rise in a lot of the regenerative cropping uses animals in the system and, and replicates some of those sort of grasslands and you don't always have animals necessarily in it, but the best region uh, operations do. And, and you never have the ground bare. You graze it so you can then drill in, et cetera, et cetera. But no, the rule of thumb is you, you end up, if you see a bare ground that's been ploughed or overgrazed, you know carbon is escaping and your biology is shutting down and everything else is falling. It's, so it's sort of fairly one basic 101 agronomy, but uh, it's not taught like that at most mm. universities. There's only one university in Australia really teaching it, in fact. And so with the, I guess, the the region ag in cropping, that was a space that I, I've found really interesting because obviously when you first start reading up on region ag and, and sort of, you know, looking into the practices that go, you know, into uh, making up a region ag farm, cropping doesn't initially appear to be something that you can actually apply these principles to. However, as you just said, you can because you can put animals through through your um your cropping and you can I guess do that at various different stages. Like if you've got your loosen, which you can actually graze several times before you let it then go to your your fodder crop, that's going to work. But for something like sorghum or triticale or something that's a lot woodier stems, does it still work for those types of crops? I can't answer that. I, I'm I'm not a cropper. I can tell you what happens with you know, broadacre cereals and, and similar crops. There's a couple in Western Australia who have evolved what I think is one of the a world breakthrough that is quite extraordinary. It's a, a couple called Ian and Di Haggerty out in what's really 
what Europeans and North Americans would think was beach sand is that light sandy ancient soils of West Australia for our, for our sort of northeast of Perth. And they started with only 600 acres in a debt, realised they had to do something radical. They were already thinking empathically with nature. So they've now developed a world breakthrough in cropping, which has led to them going from 600 acres with a debt to cropping 50,000 acres. So it's highly profitable. And they use the same modern machinery, and, and we're talking big acres, giant machines. But when they plant the seeds, instead of putting in modern industrial fertilizer and GM seeds and all that sort of stuff, they, they're getting varieties of seeds that have integrity and, and, and that no fertilizer, no chemicals. So at the point of injection of the seed into the ground, they've got one hose that's dropping in uh, worm juice, which is the biology, and then they've got another hose dropping in compost extract, which is the food for the biology. So you've got totally natural ingredients. They are now getting equivalent or better yields than industrial neighbours, but they've eliminated 90% of their costs, which is the industrial inputs. And they're getting added benefits like beautiful organic grain. They don't get the frost damage at harvest and the rain damage at harvest that the pumped up industrial crops full of nitrogen tend to get. And that's why they've become so profitable. So as far as your good question on the stiffer stalks, et cetera, I suspect that uh, you can keep your ground cover just by uh, shredding them and uh, letting that organic matter cover it, let the biology bring it back into the soil. But I, I know uh, the sugarcane farmers in um, Queensland now, the pioneers have gone organic mm. with, with sort of roller machines that break it down and that sort of stuff. Yes, they're using a bit of um, fossil fuels, but the rest of it, uh, they've got rid of all the horrendous chemical and all those sorts of things and keeping the ground covered and, uh, and breaking down those big stems. So I presume that's the methodology. Mm. That must be some massive worm farm that the, <laughs> the farm on the sand has. <laughs> more more <laughs> than a worm farm, it's a massive zoo that's underneath. You know, there's, it's, yeah. uh, and that's, that's what we're about. It's the soil biology that drives everything and, and the soil biology with the plants have co-evolved over millions of years. And all, all regen farming is doing is, is letting nature's ancient systems self-organise, renew as they've evolved to do rather than suppressing that. Mm. So there are still many farms in Australia using traditional methods such as burning vegetation, um, fertiliser and chemical use and overgrazing, ploughing and fallowing like we've just discussed. You've visited and studied many farms over your journey. So can you describe some of the main symptoms of a landscape that's suffering from ill-adapted processes that you might notice when you first walk onto a farm? Yeah, I guess the first obvious one, well, there's a few obvious ones. Once early settlers, and you know, it's pretty easy to be critical from this stage. They, they didn't understand. Most of the early European settlers, no one was advanced in their thinking enough at that time to uh, think that our Indigenous people had uh, millennia of great wisdom and little I'd talk to them about. But so the European settlers were used to, they mainly came from England and Northern Europe at the start, so they were used to an incredibly hydrated landscape on very, very young soils, like post-glacial 10,000-year-old soils that were chopped full of nutrients. Uh, a lot of Australia's soils are quite ancient, up to 3.8 billion years, which is three-quarters of the age of the Earth. So they're highly leached and, and the vegetation is adapted to that. So once they started to clear that vegetation and, and plough, uh, a number of things happened. So you see erosion gullies anywhere you drive around Australia, uh, sheet erosion, gully erosion. That's 
first obvious example. The second major one, particularly in, in West Australia, South Australia, but also in other states with those ancient soils have due to our ancient geology, there's a lot of underlying salt in the landscape down to a metre or so. And, and once you take out the vegetation pumps, that salt was able to rise and you end up with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres of saline landscapes where the vegetation dies and nothing grows and then you get erosion and all the rest of it. So they're the sort of obvious symptoms. And once you've cleared your vegetation, you, you lose your biodiversity control, your pest control, and so you then have to use insecticides to control the problem you've caused in the first place. And so on the whole sort of wheel turns, certainly in favour of the big multinational companies that are selling products. But you'll find that the farms that have rebuilt their biodiversity for insects, pest control, keep their ground cover and, and are now cropping and grazing correctly, they, they don't need to purchase expensive industrial fertilisers, let alone insecticides and herbicides. Mm. So you mentioned the wide-scale erosion, gully erosion, that we do see out in Western, the Western New South Wales a lot as as well as a lot of other, you know, parts of Australia. I do a lot of work in the, you know, erosion space, mostly in construction, but uh, obviously it's something that I am quite passionate about and do see a lot of. So to combat this large-scale widespread erosion, would it be right to say that I guess the best way to do that is to rebuild the soils, um, you know, to, to stop the traditional methods of applying your fertilisers and and those old farming or traditional farming methods, and start to to do practices that do actually rebuild our our topsoils in particular. Yeah, it's it's a difficult question because a lot of those soils took millions of years to build, especially in this continent. And you know, I, one of my earlier books was a history of the Australian Merino, and it just coincided with some of the best sheep country in Australia, places like Western New South Wales had been stocked only a couple of decades before the big century drought of, of around about 1900s, the uh, Federation drought. And uh, if you read some of the records, as I did, farmers had so overgrazed all that beautiful natural grasslands and destroyed the uh, the salt bush and, and all those stabilising species that uh, some farmers, uh, that, that as the black soil and that beautiful western soil blew, it, it covered their fences so three feet high a metre high, and, and that, that happened two or three times. So the, the loss of topsoil, you know, and as a young mountaineer, I, I remember climbing in New Zealand and, and climbing up red ice in places and the Kiwi folk I was with said, yeah, that's your bloody um, droughts of the uh, Federation and the 1930s, etc. cetera. You, you send us millions of tonnes of topsoil. You never get that back, and it's very hard if you see a deep erosion gully to, to get that back to health. It, you could, at best, you can often only do remedial action because it's incised down through critical layers, you know, like a deep wound. Mm. But having said that, there's lots of good stuff being done with, you know, the Peter Andrews work on leaky weirs and uh, allowing riparian systems to rebuild and, and the lots of vegetation being planted to stabilise things. So I'm not being negative there, but there, there's some of the damage is almost irrevocable because it's been so harsh. And the best we can do is isolate it and restrict it. So I guess improving the soil or building back better soils, as you just said, talking about the, the leaky whiz, or build back fertile soils uh, impacts greatly, I guess, on the water holding capacity in the landscape. Uh, and this is one of the key areas that you talk about. So where is this water stored in the landscape? Yeah, that's a good question. If you look at a overplowed, compacted 
denuded soil, there's not many pores for storage water. If you go and look at a really healthy soil, and a soil scientist I work with, Walter Yana, who's ex-CSRO, a soil scientist, he talks about soils as being like cathedrals. So you've got about 50%, sometimes a bit more, airspace in there, which is where not just the water is stored, but interaction of chemicals with with each other and and uh, and with the plants. Important things like cation exchange there, which is really healthy for, really important for soil chemistry and so on and so on. But, and I often show a slide of, of these these cathedral soils that people like Walter Yana talks about and their access to all the nutrients you want. And then show a photo of some of the cathedrals in Europe that were bombed out in the Second World War. And the analogy is pretty close. I mean, that, that those bombed out cathedrals, nothing is stored there, that they're pretty flat on the ground and destroyed. And that's really the difference, that they're really healthy soils, haven't just got that better airspace, they've got incredible biology, which is what holds onto a lot of the uh, water molecules and processes them and within the plant roots and all those sorts of things. So once you get biology and your structure and your, and your storage and healthy function going and then deep-rooted capacity, not shallow annual plants, but combination of your, nat- your native annuals and your deeper perennials, you end up with uh, more storage of, of water, you know, all the way around. And on top of that, if you keep your ground covered with good vegetation, you're not allowing that moisture to be evaporated all the time. So it's, it's sort, of, sort of back to front the way we farm in this dry continent. Yeah, and throughout dry periods then, this same landscape that is now holding a good amount of water will slowly release into the parts of the landscape that actually need it through, I guess, a form of osmosis to keep the landscape more hydrated. And you've seen that in your your journey and your research across all these different farms, haven't you? That one farmer uh, implementing the regen ag practices will have greenery still on on their place and farm right next door with traditional methods will be back down to soil, bare soil and very brown. That's absolutely right. But, you know, Australia does have droughts, uh, unlike uh, Europe, which is probably what caught the early settlers and, and the good croppers and grazers react to that by sending stock on adjustment or but, but reducing their numbers so that you try and keep that ground cover. Keeping that ground cover is sort of one of the golden rules in, uh, in regen farming. And in fact, it should be in any land match. Yeah, it's one of our golden rules too in erosion sediment control for construction. It's if there's one thing that people need to keep in mind and take away from the teaching that we give to them is that ground cover is the number one rule. So it's uh, across the board. So in your book, Call of the Reed Warbler, you say that today industrial agriculture is underpinned by seven main principles, as you mentioned. First one being intensive tillage, number two, monocultures, and application of synthetic fertilisers. Intensive irrigation, chemical pest and weed control, manipulation of genomes, and lastly, factory farming of animals. All of this is to maximise production and profits at the expense of taste and nutrients, which we will also talk about later. But that paradoxically, these practices often result in destruction of ecological systems and end up creating a cycle of problems that then need more of the principles applied to counter those same problems like pests and disease. Can you talk me through the regenerate principles of regenerating the five landscape functions model as a linked system of understanding to manage and prevent the problems caused by industrial agriculture? Yeah, look, we've been at industrial ag and science for you know 150 years or something. Uh, nature's been at it for uh, tens and tens of millions, so she's 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 worked it out pretty well. 
all I've done in, in my teaching and writing is adapt what are known as the four basic landscape functions. So obviously they're all Nothing would work if we didn't have photosynthesis in plants coming from the solar energy. So the solar cycle is number one, putting sugars in the soil via plants, which then feeds the soil wild. So number two is the soil mineral cycle. Depends which order you want to put them in. And that's really a healthy soil. And, and by that is meant healthy biology, which drives the whole healthy structure of the soil, the water holding capacity, the disease resistance capacity, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the solar energy feeds the bugs and you get all that right. You've got a, a soil that's, as we described before, these cathedral soils that can store water, that they can exchange nutrients, et cetera, et cetera, and lay down long carbon. And the fourth one, which is often overlooked, but is just as critical as any of them, is biodiversity or if dynamic ecosystem systems. You know, nature works in complexity. Pest controllers, photosynthesizers and dig digging critters and, and different shaped roots and all the rest of it. It's, it's, we can't have enough diversity, enough biodiversity. And so those all four are interactive. If you interfere with one of them, you're going to destabilize all the others. So it's 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 a it's a synergy between them. And then what's happened is the rise of certainly Western agriculture in the last 10,000 years, but particularly in the last you know, 150 years of industrial ag is that two-legged primate called humans have come along and we tend to disturb these millions of years of co-evolved systems and thinking we can simplify it and, and now we're reaping that harvest to the extent, as we've discussed, that, that bad behaviour, that lack of understanding, that lack of respect for nature's extraordinary uh, wisdom and complexity is now threatening the planet. Mm. So the model that we were discussing, the five landscape functions, how is this model achieving greater amounts of carbon capture and longer storage? Well, it's, it's, it's getting to things like the biology. I mean, if you have, as opposed to bare ground, if you have photosynthesizing plants on that ground for as long as it can grow in, in an Australian climate, and that's feeding the biology and the deeper roots because of the diversity, your forbs and your perennials and your annuals and stuff. That biology is making a longer-lived carbon chain, so long-lived carbon things like lomalanin, et cetera, et cetera, that we now know comes can only come through this healthy biology, and that's being laid down. Some of it can, can last, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and if it's younger-lived stuff, there's still more being made. So it's, it's really nature's worked it out. She, she, she is pulling down the carbon dioxide in the photosynthesis process, and then through the plant roots and the biology, that, that carbon is being laid down deeper and, and some of it long-term. Mm, and if we can aid in that by getting out of the way, then we can have greater, Absolutely. greater effect. Yes. We're, we're a bloody nuisance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the five landscape functions was born out of a process of investigation that you started with your trip to Zimbabwe to visit Alan Savory, who was implementing what he called holistic planned grazing. What makes up this approach that Alan was implementing? Yeah, well, it's what we discussed before uh, when he was in, what was in Kenya, et cetera, Zimbabwe now as a wildlife officer, just observing those healthy grasslands. But he was a trained zoologist and scientist and then just pretty much laid down those, those four, that model of those four biogeophysical systems that all I've done in talking, which he was alluding to anyway, is the human social aspect. And so his, his influence has uh, been terrific around the world for uh, holistic 
system. And then what's happened at about the same time, just before he came to Australia, actually, in the early 90s, Terry McCoster with, with the uh, Resource Consulting Services had begun working with uh, one of Savory's partners, Stan Parsons is his name. I'd say he just died, but uh, he, he'd worked with Savory and, and refined some of the other thinking and Savory's system to do with economic management and some of the other principles. And so it was really Parsons with McCoster that set up the Australian approach and then the Savory group have come along as well. So we're pretty lucky. We've got two really good groups working in Australia and really in terms of hectares, Australia has tens of millions of hectares now under regen grazing and it's right up there with any of the nations of the world. Mm. I, I mean, just picking up on your carbon thing, I, I'm just remembering, it was only about last year the US government commissioned Princeton University to do a major study on how we're going to address climate change and they released it's the US government that released this report uh, towards the end of last year. And if you read the, uh, it's in about four or five sections, but if you read the final concluding section, they clearly state that's probably the best method of pulling down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, surprise, surprise, is regenerative agriculture. So we've now got an endorsement at that sort of level, Princeton University through to the US government, that, you know, regen ag has some big solutions. But gee, when you go to the States and, and see how the power of those big multinationals and uh, how they've locked people into growing grain, that's GM. And, you know, when you go and have a look at the uh, big Mississippi base, and I'm sure we're going to touch on human health, but one of the leaders in that area, Dr. Zach Bush, who's work, started working in autism and is now putting the story together of what we've done to our food. He, he calls the bottom half of the Mississippi Basin Cancer Alley. It has the highest cancer rates in the world. And that's where all the big GM cropping occurs, both for the animal and human feedlot business. Mm, and I guess it's something that we can now start to see in hindsight that this is potentially you know, where the problem is being caused and how, how it's actually being caused. On a more positive note, I guess there is a cohort, which a growing cohort in, in the United States, where which, which I've been seeing across social media, where a lot of um, the younger farmers who are starting to come through are really keen on regen ag and they're actually setting up, you know, their, their smaller farms in this way. So maybe we can have it, maybe we'll see a groundswell and over the next I don't know, 10 to 20 years, we might actually see some of these people coming through and I guess pushing that the regen ag over the big industrial type farming methods because there there is definitely a lot of interest in it in the States, possibly even more so than in Australia. If you go off, you know, what is on social media and the YouTube channels and that kind of thing. Look, I, I think you're right. My, my youngest daughter who's mad keen on regen ag and is working in this space, she's, she's across this, so she's better informed than I am. But it, just look around what's happened in Australia in the last year or two. Land prices have more than tripled. I mean, it, for young people now to get on the land, it's almost impossible to land by a viable size. And I think that American example of moving to all sorts of different forms of ownership and sharing and social organisation of it is a huge example. And it's now starting to happen in Australia, in northern rivers of New South Wales and, and on the peri-urban areas around, you know, Melbourne and Sydney and other areas in, in favoured locations. So uh, I think uh, it's hugely important to uh, get more people back on land growing healthy food, different collaborative relationships. But um, go and buy a big cropping place now when you're paying 25000 30000 a hectare, it's sort of crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, pushes most people out of the market, definitely. 
So many of the farmers that you spoke to over the course of your PhD and, and writing your book had seen a significant increase in their farm productivity and profitability within really only a handful of years after implementing the Regen Ag principles. Uh, so in your book, Call of the Reed Wobbler, it was published in 2017 before the most recent drought began. Have you been back in contact with some of these farmers to hear how their farms coped through the drought? Yeah, I have. A lot of them have become close friends and colleagues without exception. And, you know, I include what we did in that time. None of them ended up at the end of that drought with a dust bowl. They destocked. Some of them have very clever operations where they only take on adjustment cattle anyway. People like the Haggerty's were still cropping in six to eight inch rainfall because of the resilience of their systems. And any skilled uh, uh, farmer with a deep understanding did not get themselves into trouble. I mean, at the end, and not that we're in that category of the best farmers, but towards the end of that drought, we only had 20, 20 stock out of you know, two, 3,000 left on the place. They were all on adjustment elsewhere where there was grass. But in the past, I would have set up expensive feedlots and, and had some animals grazing and ended up with a semi-dust bowl. So mm. the proof was in the eating, the, the resilience of the land when the rain did come was, was quite astounding with those people that hadn't taken it to a dust bowl. Yeah, and I'm um, talking about the, the Haggertys. Are you referring to Tony Haggerty of Gunnaganoo Station? No, Ian and Di Haggerty in, of Western Australia. So ah, different, okay. Different ones. Different. And I write about them in, in the book, but they're, they're as I say, the natural intelligence agriculture system is it's just such a world breakthrough that would apply in, in a lot of the dry continents of the world, any continents. Uh, so as managers of landscapes, farmers are dealing with all of the intricate and interrelated relationships of biology and nature in general. These are that encompass the five landscape functions. It's a very complex system to understand and there's so many things to consider. It's such a learning process for people to understand and then implement, you know, the region ag principles, especially when considering the operating influences and other constraints and the functions of nature and how those change. How do you distill these systems down so that they can be understood by farmers and students in the early stages of their journeys? You're full of simple questions. <laughs> well, that's where that five landscape functional model comes so powerful because it's sort of a, a easy to grasp ABC model, if you like, of how things function. And uh, you can make it as complex as you want to. But if, if you can get that your head into that and then have a look at your farm, you can see where your weakest link is. Are you lacking biodiversity? Do your soils need improvement through active things like natural fertilizer, cover cropping to you know, improve the your biology, uh, do what the Haggard is doing, whatever. That's that's where that model is, is so important. And uh, it's a matter of identifying the weak link and then, and then addressing it and then you'll start to kick everything into gear. But if you don't address that, what you're mainly lacking, say just a bare farm with no biodiversity control, well, then you're pest controlling and insects and birds and stuff are going to let you down when you, when you, when you need help, et cetera, et cetera. So or if, it, if it's your soil health, it's, uh, it's plenty of natural. I mean, uh, nature's the best way to get your, your soil health going by getting good diversity in there, kicking that biology into gear. And, and recent research has shown that uh, when you get to a critical mass of healthy soil function through the biology, it's only in the last few years that we've come to understand a thing called quorum sensing 
And without getting too technical, it's where the plants and the microbes start to talk to each other in a synergistic fashion as they've co-evolved to do for a long period. If, you, if you've got a simplified system, that's not occurring. But once you get to this critical health stage, this quorum sensing kicks in. So, for example, a plant's running out of nitrogen, it sends out a special chemical, a hormone that says, hey, fellas, I'm, uh, I need some nitrogen and the, um, the rhizobia bacteria will migrate over to that plant and start fixing nitrogen on an ovule or, or could be a, a, a disease attack. But the signal will go out and the attack bacteria or whatever will come in and sort that out. So it's quite remarkable how nature has, through those millions of years, worked in a collaborative way. And all we've done with industrial ag is simplify and destroy a lot of that. And I guess in the end, as we said, nature knows how to organise itself. So as a, a farmer or a landscape manager, we just know, we need to know where and how to get out of the way and let nature get back to work. It's a good summary. Often we're in the bloody way, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so in a previous podcast, we had a lady, Danielle Morton from Zondi, in for a conversation about the technology that she's helping bring to Australia. Now, this technology uses mass spectrometry to analyse for residual chemicals on fruit and veg. And Danielle talked about the future of the technology being used to identify fruits and vegetables grown using regen ag principles through the nutrient density of, say, an individual apple or pear, for example. We have lost a lot of the taste in our food that we buy from supermarkets because of how it's produced, as well as the nutrients and the natural chemicals, which are actually healthy for our bodies from, from this mass-produced food as a result of industrial ag principles. So can you, I guess, talk me through this thinking around how Regen Ag can actually increase the nutrient density uh, and chemical, natural chemicals that occur in the fruit and veg that we eat? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it goes to the heart of our modern health crisis. And also there's some Australians now just releasing in the last month really good uh, measurement technologies to get a handle on this wide spectrum of nutrients. It's not an easy thing to measure, as you can imagine, because it's so diverse. But I mean, the, the issue is, it's a double issue actually, is that if you simplify with an industrial landscape, you haven't got the biology uh, going out and pulling in the healthy nutrients to go into those plants, which which the, our animals and we then eat, where, where you get that diversity of micronutrients and nutrients. It's pretty straightforward. And on top of that, with a lot of the GM genetically modified uh, and, and very uh, strongly industrially bred cultivars of, of plants, you've got plants now that are really drug addicts waiting for their fertiliser dose and that, they've lost that capacity to go out and hustle for food. Yeah, there's... If, if you think about one of the critical bits of biology in the soil, the, uh, the root fungus, the microhousal fungi, in a healthy cubic metre of soil, the fungi has these fine tubes called hyphae, they're microscopic. They're, they have a bargain with the plants. The plants release the root sugars through photosynthesis. And, and then you know, a symbiotic bargain that the fungi have is to go out and access food for the plants. And, and the, so that's the partnership. And, and they do it with these little microscopic hyphae. So in a healthy cubic metre of really healthy soil, you might have 20,000 kilometres of these micro hyphae out hustling for food to bring back to the plants. If you spray, fertilise, plough, have an industrial crop, you haven't got that. So you've really got drug addict plants waiting for their nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, fertiliser dose. There may be a little bit of what's remaining biology that's source. So 
that then goes to the heart of, of what goes into our food, whether the animal's eating either those healthy plants with all those nutrient-dense, rich, diverse chemistry in it, or, or the padded out, uh, bolstered with industrial props, what are really nutrient-empty modern foods. And, and so if, if anyone wants to get their head around this, uh, this guy I've worked with uh, is unbelievably articulate, Dr. Zach Bush uh, on the East Coast of the States, who began working in autism in, in his just GP practice. And then like all the modern health diseases, and this relates to directly to what we're talking, if, if you look at the rise of industrial ag from post-Second World War when all the chemistry became available, within two decades, you have an exponential rise in modern health diseases, all of them, Alzheimer's, autism, ADHD, all the modern diseases that weren't on the radar in the 1920s are suddenly having this takeoff at an exponential level. It's related to Firstly, not having all those critical nutrients in the food. And secondly, the chemicals that are now getting in, whether it's the world's most widely used uh, herbicide, glyphosate, or Roundup, and, and, and all the other stuff. So uh, this is such a huge issue. And the swing over to Regen Ag can help solve this. But again, we're up against this enormous power. But that's why really healthy, nutrient-rich food off healthy soils tastes totally different to the bland, basically empty <laughs> nutrient crap that it is foisted on us and, and some of the big retailers. Mm. So, yeah, power to the, uh, to the rise in farmers' markets and, and box schemes and all the rest of it, which is really trying to turn the tide. And, and the best thing that for a young family provider of food to children can do is, for heaven's sake, go out and access nutrient-rich food off healthy soils before you start poisoning your whole family sort of thing. Mm. So I guess uh, coming back to trying to grow your own food where you can or sourcing locally from from producers who, who grow organically uh, is, you know, probably the best thing that we can actually start to do uh, for our own families. As you said, some of the lifestyle diseases that have, have been linked by this early days research uh, are things like cardiovascular disease, obesity, uh, ADHD and autism, which are so prevalent in our society and obviously this is possibly starting to answer the question, as you said, as to, to why we've seen such a rise. Well, you know, there's another issue there. I mean, our current projections, you talked listen to the Zach Bushes and other people of this world who are really across this data. If you combine some of those diseases you're talking about, autism, et cetera, et cetera, where in America within about 15 years there might be one child in three now will have autism. Mm. Australia's probably not far behind. I mean, you hardly ever heard about it 40, 50 years ago. What's, what's now emerging with obesity, the cardiovasculars, the autisms and all those sorts of things, uh, particularly in young ages, is that it's going to destroy any modern economy. There's, there's no way the hospital systems and, and the people that are ill that can't work and all the rest of it can, can start sustaining that. So we're not just talking about a planetary crisis, that the human health crisis, which parallels it and has, has the same causes. It could be literally frightening. So there's so many reasons for not just if you can't, if you haven't got even a window box or a garden that you could convert over into healthy food growing, uh, go and source it from your, you know, your local farmers markets. But, uh, you know, and that's the other side of the coin. I've seen statistics and Australia wouldn't be that far behind that the sixth biggest crop in the state's equivalent is the garden law. There's no biodiversity. Cops are heap of fertilizer often chemicals and stuff. Imagine if, you know, that amount of acreage 
in industrial lawns was put back to food system. It'd be such mutual benefit all around, except for the big multinationals flogging the product, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I guess this, this yeah, really brings it back down to the grassroots of what we can do for ourselves because the reality is that the world's population is growing and therefore to steer completely away from an industrial ag system, I'm not sure how practical that actually is for everyone to do. But I guess the the point is that there is this dilemma and at some point we will need to address changing the large-scale agricultural practices as well. But in the meantime, we can, you know, do our own window boxes or our own small gardens or rip up our lawns and, and plant food that way. So, yeah, the dilemma with the the agricultural practices on a large scale to the ones that restore ecosystem functions and produce the healthy, nutrient-rich, wild foods uh, of our past, that change, and and thanks in part to you definitely, as well as all the other farmers that you've been talking about, is something that hopefully our children might get to see. But you also talk about a change being needed in our belief systems. And can you tell me a bit more about what you mean for that change? Well, it comes back to what we were talking about, the organic and the mechanical mind. At the moment, we, we are such a dominant species that we basically see ourselves as, as uh, separate to nature, that we, you know, we dominate it, that we're, we're not just one other species that should be in sync with the rest of nature. And, and so it's really this arrogance we've got that we, that we are there to dominate and destroy and control. And to me, we can bring in that shift to biophilia and humility instead of the exploiting, dominating approach, which has really come out of Western science. You don't, you don't find it in a lot of the Eastern religions. That's the shift, I guess, I'm talking about, yeah. Mm. So with um, the Regen Ag practices, uh, we've talked about the fact that it's grassroots, it's starting to get grounds for both here and in the States and in Africa, as, as you mentioned. What do you think the next, I don't know, 15 to 20 years might hold for Regen Ag practices? I, I think it's going to keep exploding just because as more of this information gets out and the health crisis looms and the planetary crisis looms, well, I mean, surely, who's to say, but surely we're going to come to our senses. I know we're still going to need an industrial backup just to produce bulk foods to feed this rising population, but uh, I, I guess I'm an optimist in the switch gradually occurring, but somehow when you look at the world today and, and the big non-democratic countries, the way they, they're behaving and, and crisis in human health and all the rest of it, there could be room for pessimism as well. But I think we have to be positive and, and hope for a tipping point that people really start to wake up and some of these big multinationals that are poisoning humanity and, and, and the earth are brought to account. Mm. And I guess that positivity is what's going to hopefully push us along fast enough to get to where we actually need to be or close to where we need to be. Because as you said, pessimism, yes, it's it's warranted, but it's not going to help. So I think having these conversations and what you're doing with going around and talking to lots of different people and organizations is fantastic. It's it's really getting the message out there. So excellent. And thank you so much for your time. No, pleasure. And look, vice versa, without the you know, modern podcasts, getting new ideas out there, that's been a huge uh, factor. So, you know, well done on, on, the, on the job you guys are doing and, and thanks very much. No, thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you today and really informative um, and, and interesting to have this conversation. So that wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Chanel Gleason-Willie and I've been your host today. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.